Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, Hope in the Midst of Suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission, and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing. It's so good to be here, and um, last time that Sue and I here, Sue, my wife, is here with me as well, um, last time I was here, we were, the reno still hadn't been finished. I preached just over here somewhere, um, and uh, we were just forming, hadn't officially launched uh, New Life Cooley, and you know, the last three years, almost three years, October 24, it'll be three years since we uh, were sent out, didn't leave New Life, we were sent out. <laughs> from New Life to go to the Badlands of Sydney. Uh, and um, ever since, you know, we've, I've been stalking you on Facebook, <laughs> and all of you, and especially Cooley, and we've rejoiced. Yeah. We've rejoiced in what God has done, is doing, and will do yeah. in and through this place. So uh, to those of you, uh, and there were, there were some in the 8 o'clock service, and I forgot to do this, but if you were part, I'm not going to embarrass you, but if you were part of the old Twin Towns, Coolangatta Uniting Church, and you willingly closed in order to start something fresh and new, I honour you. Yeah. If you were part of that launch team that was sent out from Rabina, I honour you. Uh, because lives have been transformed by the gospel. Eternities have been shaped because you were prepared to step out in faith and be sacrificial in that way. And I need to tell you, the story of what God is doing here, uh, it's encouraging people all across the nation to consider what they might do as well. So I tell your story, I brag about you a lot. (laughs) So thank you so much and about the rest of the New Life family as well. It's so good to be here. As I said, October 24, um, we finished our time here, sent out from from New Life. And the next day, October 25, Sue and I piled up into a hire car, uh, just the last of our possessions crammed into it, our dog on the back seat, and we drove from Rabina to Roseville in Sydney. And our phones were pinging with hundreds of messages that day, and we, we wept the whole way down. <laughs> tears of joy, tears of grief, uh, tears of gratitude. Uh, and then about six months after that, um, I was uh, uh, just scrolling through uh, my Facebook feed, which I do a fair bit of, uh, and uh, it was around Easter time, it was just after Easter, and I saw photos of baptisms from New Life Cooley down on the beach, and I wept <laughs> with gratitude for what God was doing. Um, and then uh, just about four or five weeks ago, um, I, was, I preached up at New Life Brisbane four weeks ago or thereabouts, and I thought, oh, I'll listen to the message the week before. And it happened to be Scotty preaching at New Life uh, Rabina. And um, it was a cracking message. I just had a breakfast meeting, and I was traveling into the city for work. And so I thought, I'll, I'll listen on the way in. And Scotty's message was about the same length as my commute, so it was perfect. And uh, it was a great message, but right at the start of the message, what got me was he told his story. He introduced himself to the Rabina family, again, many of whom wouldn't have heard his story about how he came to faith. 
And so I got into, I got into work, and later on, I can't remember how long afterwards, I texted Scotty, dude, I listened. What a message. But, I mean, I, I wept all the way in <laughs> to work, listening to this message and, what, and remembering the faithfulness of God. Um, you know, the 15 years, we were singing that song, The Goodness of God. For 15 years, we lived, breathed, and sat under the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Uh, and we continue to do that, and you continue to do that, because that is who God is. Yeah. God is faithful. God is good. All the time, God is good. Uh, so it's just a, it's a real privilege to be here. So there's a bit of a theme about crying and weeping, because, uh, you know, we were up for Mike's ordination, Mike Hand's ordination on Thursday night, um, but just so happened, we've also been waiting for our first grandchild, our, our first grandbaby. Um, uh, Emily, our daughter, was due to give birth in two weeks' time, but, but Rosie May decided to come early. And so she was born on Wednesday. Uh, and so on uh, Friday, I got to meet her for the first time. Sue was at the birth. Uh, she's still recovering from that. Um, so uh, I got to nurse her for the first time and uh, I covered her with my tears and my prayers in equal measure. What a joy. What a joy. So um, it, it's just so we're so grateful for this season and we're so grateful for you and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to preach in this series and this remarkable letter, First Peter, uh, as we look at how it is that we can have hope in the midst of suffering. And so as we, as we step into this, um, we've had a few tech issues this morning. So if you've got a Bible or if you've got an app on your phone or your device, I'm going to encourage you to get it out now. No doom scrolling, okay? Uh, but if you go to First Peter chapter 4, we're going to read from verse 7. We're going to go through it pretty much verse by verse today, from verse 7 uh, through to verse 19. Um, so as you're turning to your Bible, I want to ask you a question. What is your purpose in life? What is the purpose of life, your life? What's, what is it? What are you living for? Is it self-fulfillment? Is it self-actualization? Is, is the purpose of life to be happy? What is it? You know, what's the purpose that we were created for? What's the purpose that you are living for? Here's my premise, is that God created us with great intentionality. Yeah. We were created on purpose. You're not an accident. And we were created for a purpose. We were created by love. God is love. That's what the Apostle John reminds us. God is love. We are created by love, for love, to be the recipients of God's love. And we were created to love. Mm to love God and to love others in response to the love of God that he pours into our lives. Another way of answering that question, what is the purpose of life, um, was articulated by believers like you and me about 500 years ago. Uh, this was back in a time when most people could not read or write, and so uh, church leaders would uh, construct what they called these catechisms, these series of questions and answers that people would memorise in order to, be, to have a, a sure foundation in the gospel. And one of those catechisms, a series of Q&As, uh, was called the Westminster Catechism. It comes out the United Kingdom. And the first question, famously, of the Westminster Catechism, there's more than 100 questions and answers. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? Now, just backing back from the language, what is the purpose of life? What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question, what is the chief end of man? It goes on to say in the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. 
to glorify God and enjoy God forever. You, we, I was created in order to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And those two things are inseparable. As we glorify God, we enjoy God. As we enjoy God, we glorify him. Now, when Emily, our daughter, who gave birth just a few days ago, when she was little herself, she knew how to wrap her father around her little finger, like most daughters can. And around bedtime, she used to invite me. Just before bed, she had an uncanny sense of when bedtime was coming. She used to invite me, and she'd go, Daddy, she'd grab my hand and say, Daddy, dance with me, dance with me. And what father can say no to that? Seriously. And she'd take me up to the front lounge room. We'd put on the stereo. We'd put on some Hillsong music or whatever. And there was nothing coordinated about this. There was nothing artistic about this. This was not sacred dance. But we would dance around the lounge room, jumping off furniture and mucking around. And it was giggles and laughter and, you know, exhaustion for me after a little while. Uh, And, of course, Sue would just be rolling her eyes in the corner thinking he's just hyping up our daughter before bed. Um, But it was, uh, in that moment, like, it was just pure joy. Pure joy for her and certainly pure joy for me as well. Why am I telling you that story? Well, the ancient church fathers, you know, back 3rd, 4th, 5th century, they actually had a Latin word that described the dynamic that is who God is. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, this deep, profound mystery that that God is one but known in three persons. And that God is a relationship, a relationship of love in the Godhead, but a a relationship of love that's poured out on the world. And, And they had this word called perichoresis. And it literally means dancing around. The God is a dance, a dance of love. And he invites us to dance with him. What does it mean to glorify and enjoy God? It means to dance with him, to dance with him. And that's the dance that he invites you and I into, that you and I have participated in, are participating as we surrender our life with him. And so the title of today's message is All for God's Glory. How is it that we glorify God? How is it that we enjoy God? How is it that we dance with God? How do we glorify God? How do we enjoy God? These things which are inseparable. What Peter is suggesting to us in the text we're about to read is that we enjoy God. This is, not, this is not an exhaustive list, but here are two ways. There are other ways, but two ways, profound ways that we glorify God is through our service and in our suffering. Through our service and in our suffering. So let's look at that. So we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4, reading from verse 7. Glorifying God through our service is where we're going to start first. So Peter starts. He says... The end of all things is near. Now, you could say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. We're still waiting. Did Peter get it wrong? The end of all things is near. There's a, there's a profound sense of anticipation of, of, of Jesus could come back any time in that statement. But I'm here to tell you that Peter certainly wasn't wrong. He was right 2,000 years ago and he's right today. Because what he's speaking to is a profound truth that in Jesus, in Jesus' incarnation, that is his, his embodiment in human flesh, in his crucifixion, And in his resurrection, the vindication of the victory he won in his crucifixion, the end of history has arrived. God's kingdom has broken in. 
God's kingdom has come. And one day when Jesus returns, his kingdom will be consummated. So just as Jesus lived, died and rose again, he will surely come again. And in such a way that no one will be able to ignore us. And so we live now, you and I, right here, right now, as Peter did 2,000 years ago, we live in the already and the not yet, the kingdom come and the kingdom that will one day be consummated when Jesus comes again. We're living, as I would like to put it, in a long epilogue to history. And at the end, when the credits roll, that final scene, after that final scene, Every tear will be dried. Everything will be made new. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain because God has made all things new. That's the time that we live in. And so we live and we serve in this in-between time between the kingdom come and kingdom consummated. We live our lives on tiptoes, peering to the horizon, anticipating when Jesus will come again. We live with a sense of urgency and intentionality. That's what Peter is saying to you and to I and to those he wrote to first. And so living with the end in mind gives us new meaning and purpose to the present. It's like the future is crashing into the present. It shapes it. And so Peter goes on. He gives some very practical advice for you and I about how we should live with the end in mind. How we should live with purpose. First thing he says is pray expectantly. Therefore be alert of sober mind that you may pray. And what Peter is saying, not literally but figuratively, pray with one eye open. One eye open to the future. And here's the thing, when you, when you read the Acts of the Apostle, the history of the early church, when you read the epistles, the writing of the early church leaders, you recognise that the early church and the church at its best is a praying church. And when the church prays, here's a secret for you, stuff happens. Stuff happens. It was when they were gathered in the upper room in worship and in prayer, having a prayer meeting, that the fire of God falls on them. Yeah. And their world is turned upside down and our world was turned upside down as the church is born and blown out into the streets and to the cities. It was as uh, the elders and leaders in the megachurch of the ancient world in Antioch were praying with Paul and Barnabas that God laid on their heart, set apart for me these two men that they might be missionaries for my gospel. These two men who were beloved by that community, they said, well, no, we need to sacrificially send them because God has a new assignment. And Paul and Barnabas went out and they established the mission to the Gentiles. And you and I are here today because of that. It was when Paul and Silas were in prison and they were having a praise party. They were praying and praising God. And it's when they were doing that that God breaks their chains and there's a prison breakout. Stuff happens when the church prays. And so Paul is saying, pray expectantly. This is the first work of the church is to pray. Paul writes in Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful. Be watchful and be thankful. 
Now, for the last three years, I've been serving in Sydney as the CEO and superintendent for Wesley Mission really quickly. So Wesley Mission, we're a church and community services organisation. So there's nine congregations uh, and uh, very multicultural, uh, amazing uh, diversity uh, across our community, Chinese, Australians, Indonesians, Samoans, Tongans, Fijians. It's awesome. The food is fantastic. Uh, And... um, we also have community services, so spread it right across New South Wales, right up to Ballina, down to Wollongong, out west, and then around Australia. So over 2,000 staff. It's, it's a white-knuckle ride for me, I have to tell you. But one of the things I love about our organisation is our history and our heritage, and it's a heritage of prayer not just of activism, but of prayer. So we, we, try, we date our history back to 1812, one of the oldest organisations in the, in the nation, one of the oldest churches. And um, in 1884, um, the person who served in my role, the first, the first CEO superintendent, was a man called W.G. Taylor. There's only been 10 of them across since 1884. I'm number 10. All the other nine have had beards. I can't grow a beard, so this is a very sad state of affairs. Uh, but anyway, my beard looks like Abraham Lincoln on a bad day. So, uh, But W.G. Taylor, when he came uh, to what was then York Street Methodist Church, it wasn't, at, it wasn't Wesley Mission then, when he came to York Street Methodist Church, it was a church that could hold 1,000 people that had 30 people in it. Right? And the Methodist Conference wanted to close it down and sell it. Uh, and people said to him, don't go there. If you go there, take your coffin because you'll dead, be, a bed, be a dead man when you come out. It'll, it'll kill you. But he was a man who, he went somewhat reluctantly, but he went because he just wanted to obey the call of God. He was a great evangelist, but more than anything else, he was a man of prayer, and he initiated these prayer meetings. And I've read his diaries. And this is 20, 30 years before Azusa Street and the Pentecostal revival that sort of swept across the world and still shaping us today. 20 or so years before that, he would have these all-night prayer meetings where the fire of God would fall on people and they would fall down. God did amazing things. And within 10 years, this church of 30 people was a mega church of more than 2,000. As people came to faith in their hundreds and then in their thousands, And it wasn't because necessarily he was a gifted man. He was. It was because that whole church was saturated in prayer, saturated in prayer, expectant prayer. How do we glorify God? We pray expectantly. W.G. Taylor said this, if we expect Pentecostal results, we should use Pentecostal methods. In other words, we should pray, should pray. He goes on, Peter, he says, as we are watchful, as we live with the end of mind, we should love fiercely. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. The early church was radically diverse. In a first century culture where people kept to their tribe, they kept to their family, they kept to their clan, the church had rich and poor, young and old, people of different ethnicities, slaves and slave owners, Jews and Gentiles. It was radically, completely diverse. And so in that diversity, you can imagine there was plenty of opportunity to offend one another. My experience, and I've been in the church pretty much all my life, is that churches are great incubators for sandpaper people. People that can rub you up the wrong way. 
And so Peter is saying to this radically diverse church, where you have, because where else at the church in this day and age too, do you have such diversity? He's saying to the church family, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. When he says love covers a multitude of sins, is he saying, well, if you love people like that, you earn some special favour from God. Do you earn a, a better seat in heaven? Do you cover up some of your own sins? Does it make up? Does it atone for some of your own sins? He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is this. When you love each other fiercely and deeply, you see past, in God's strength, you see past the flaws and the fallibilities of others and you see them as God sees them. The Imago Dei, the image of God in them. Love each other fiercely, he's saying. He then goes on. Welcome people sacrificially. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, the early church, uh, the first century world was an incredibly mobile world by comparison with every generation before. Roman roads had opened up the empire. Transportation systems across the sea had done the same. And so people were moving around like never before. And so itinerant teachers and leaders in the church, they would move from place to place, uh, like Paul, like Peter, like others as well, people that we don't know, women and men whose names we do not know, who are, which are lost to history. And so you had this dynamic, growing, multicultural network of churches where charismatic leaders, teachers and pastors would move around amongst them. And the way in which they survived, the way in which they were able to live was through the hospitality of the churches which they would visit. And so Peter is saying, offer hospitality to one another. As you move around this, this big, wide world, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, the context of that, of course, is that to offer hospitality, it wasn't just an inconvenience for most people. For most people, it was a life and death decision. You see, in the first century world, most people were impoverished. There was a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the community, including in the church, who had wealth. But most people lived day to day. They didn't know where they were getting their food from one day to the next. And so they didn't have a cost of living crisis. They had a constant cost of survival crisis. How do we live from one day to the next? So to to be hospitable, to open up your home, to offer food and a roof over someone's head, this came with some sacrifice. And yet, you read through the New Testament, you see it again and again and again, the importance of hospitality. It was a key New Testament attribute. We read in Hebrews, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, when we think of hospitality today, when I think of hospitality, I think of a better homes and gardens photo shoot. (laughs) of how to have your house nice and pristine, ready to welcome people, to have it picture perfect, ready for the real estate agents. But true hospitality, my friends, is sacrificially generous. And in fact, when you read the New Testament, if you want to become a leader in the church, an elder, a presbyter, a bishop, then one of the marks, one of the tests of being an elder was, are you hospitable? The question was, do you have good platform skills? But do you live a welcoming, open, hospitable life? 
And, and so what Peter is saying, our love and our hospitality should be both fervent and should be strenuous. And when we experience that sort of sacrificial, generous hospitality, let me tell you, it's transformative. You know, for most of the time I was here at New Life, we had a, we had a partnership uh, with a number of churches overseas, but with a church in Solomon Islands in the Western Province. And the first time I travelled there would have been about 15 years ago, just four or five of us. And we went to Munda. You sort of fly on smaller and smaller planes. It's a bit scary. And we got to Munda. And when we got to Munda, we were welcomed by Caleb and Tanya, people we got to know really well. And um, we, we, we had a welcome feast. And we went into uh, the church office, um, which is the national office. It was basically just a Besser block building and you know, very basic. But there were these tables laden with food, like 10 times as much food as there was people to eat it, right? Just completely over the top. There was coral trout caught out in the bay. There was, you know, chicken and, you know, and in Solomon Islands, I learned you eat all of the chicken, like all of the chicken. <laughs> Um, and there was all sorts of food. They must have known me, but they must have known my love language because there were cans of Coke ready there as well. Uh, and then there were things, really strange things, like there was, you know, when you think you had all this beautiful fresh seafood, there were cans of tin tuna uh, and, and macaroni salad, stuff you think, oh, that's a bit incongruous, a bit strange. And um, one of the guys that was with us who travelled the Solomon Islands before, he, he sidled up to me and he said... Um, there was nothing particularly special about this feast. There was nothing that was a, like a culinary masterpiece. It was just good, solid, basic food. But my friend Bruce sidled up to me and he said, this would have cost Caleb and Tanya a month's salary. <laughs> then it became the feast. When I had some recognition of what this cost. They didn't make any noise about it. They didn't make a big deal of it, but they wanted to honour us. This was the type of hospitality Peter's talking about. Fervent and strenuous and sacrificial. And I was blown away. I thought, I know nothing about hospitality. I know nothing about it. It was so humbling. In the early church, the sort of hospitality that sisters and brothers in Christ would show to each other, it eventually spilled beyond the borders of the church out into the world. It wasn't just for believers, it was for non-believers as well. In fact, through the pandemics, there was two major pandemics that killed millions of people in the first three centuries. During those pandemics, Christians became known for the way in which they cared, not only for those in their own community who were suffering, but for anybody who was suffering. It was such a radical example to a world where the rich would flee the cities and abandon even family members to the disease. And Emperor Julian in the 4th century, he was a Roman emperor, a pagan Roman emperor. He was trying to turn back the advance of Christianity and he could, he could see how Christians had set up these charitable uh, sort of exercises that were really being transformative, not just for the community, but drawing people to the gospel. And so he decided that he would get his uh, leaders to set up pagan charities, but they failed dismally because they had none of the motivation. And he, he said this, he said, it is a disgrace that the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. You can almost hear him sneering it. And one of the things I love about where I work now, where I serve now, 
uh, as I said, Wesley Mission, we're this incredibly uh, long-standing organisation. We started in 1812 when four men, um, was men, uh, gathered in the rocks in Sydney. One of them was a convict still, Edward Eager, and they decided to establish the first Methodist fellowship in Australia, the new colony. They had no building, uh, just four of them, and they started a house church, and that mushroomed and grew, and they started to plant churches. But they still had no building until 1819, seven years later. In 1819, they built their first chapel in Sydney. Here's the cool thing. Same year they built their first chapel, they built the first homeless shelter in Australia. Because hospitality was so important. It wasn't just what we do within the four walls on a Sunday morning at 10am that was important. It's what we did during the week. Where we be, where they be prepared to be hospitable 24-7 and are we? If I roll forward to today, now where's the mission where they're big, this big diverse community services organisation and one of the really cool things, one of the things that's close to my heart that we do is that we're one of the biggest foster care, out-of-home care providers in New South Wales. So last night, uh, about 500 families supported by Wesley Mission looked after 672 young people in foster care. Right? And uh, about a year ago, I got to meet, I've met a number of these families, but I met this one particular family, Caroline and David Steadman. They're in their late 70s. And they've been looking after foster care kids with us since 1976. 1976. And the reason I, interview, I interviewed them for our senior staff, about 100 of our senior staff in the room, and they told their story. Uh, they'd just been awarded OAMs in, in uh, one of the, I think it was the Australia Day uh, honours. And uh, they were surprised to get these honours because they didn't know who had nominated them, how it happened. And they found out the story eventually that um, since 1976, a neighbour had watched them they live in Taramara on the northern beach, on the North Shore. Had noticed, a neighbour had noticed that they had been constantly, for those, all those decades, pushing prams up and down the street. And they thought, can't be all their kids and their grandkids. I mean, they've been doing this for decades. So they asked the neighbour, what's going on? And the neighbour said, well, they've been looking after foster care kids all this time. And when I interviewed Carolyn and David, um, their story is this. Not only have they been looking after foster care kids, but the, what they have specialised in is taking babies, is caring for babies. Sometimes babies that have been abandoned in the hospital. Often, more often than not, babies that are born with drug addictions, heroin, methamphetamines, other addictions, alcohol. And uh, that's what they've been doing. Uh, since 1976, since 1976, they have cared for 79 babies. 79 babies. And Caroline shared with me that sometimes they'd, they'd be handed a baby and it was obvious that that baby had been so neglected that the nappy was stuck to them. They'd have to soak them in a bath to get the nappy off. Caroline shared with us that um, she had hearing aids. She said, I think I have hearing aids because the heroin babies, I'd nurse them for hours upon end, and they had this piercing scream. They would just go through every fibre of your being. She said this cheerfully, can I tell you? Not with any complaint, but cheerfully, because Caroline and David do this because they're believers. They do it with us, with Wesley Mission, a Christian organisation, because we support them in their faith. And Caroline said, 
And I quote, I just believe that we have a God-given gift, the gift of caring. I'd call it the gift of hospitality. And I just believe that if God has given you a gift, God expects you to use it. So many people say to us, when are you going to stop doing this? And I say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything at all about retirement. (laughs) I've done quite a bit of going to church every Sunday my entire life, and I've never heard a sermon on retirement. So God expects you to use your gift while you ever can. And when you can't, then you're allowed to stop. Common sense. No fuss. You know, when we interviewed... Uh, Caroline and David, senior staff, they immediately left and there was, as a phone call had come through to their caseworker, there was another child for them to go and pick up at the hospital. Number 80. James says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My friends, imagine our world where the church is radically, sacrificially and welcoming in its hospitality. Imagine our world where we are withdrawing into our tribes, into our enclaves. Here on the Gold Coast, I've reflected on this a lot, here on the Gold Coast where so many live behind gated walls. Imagine if we opened up our doors and welcomed people into our homes. He also encourages us Peter encourages us to serve humbly. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So my friends, when it comes to service, hear this. We don't serve out of our lack. We serve out of his abundance. The abundance of the gifts that he pours into our lives. We don't serve with the gift we wish we had. We serve with the gifts that he has given to us. And we serve not as reservoirs that store up God's blessing. We serve as rivers that flow with them. And so we glorify God through our service as we pray expectantly on tiptoes with one eye open. We glorify God as we love fiercely, as we welcome sacrificially, and as we serve humbly. Here's the thing, my friends. Real saving faith will be shown by real loving service. You know, I... um, I was journaling uh, through earlier this year through uh, Paul's letters to the Galatians. And you know, sometimes when you're reflecting on Scripture, sometimes you just soak in the truth of Scripture. And sometimes Scripture smacks you around the head. This was one of those smack you around the head moments. Like where the words just leapt off the page. I thought, how come I've never seen that? I would have read these words probably dozens, if not hundreds of times before. But for some reason, I'd missed it. And Paul is writing to the church in Galatia and he's reminding people who are getting caught up in all sorts of controversies about what it means to be a real Christian. There were some people saying, yeah, to be a real Christian, you need Jesus, plus you need some other stuff, a thing called circumcision, and then you're really saved. And what Paul is effectively saying to them is, that, no, no, it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Yeah. All you need is Jesus. And if you have Jesus, then this is how you shall live. And, and what he says, the, the, the scripture that leapt off the page at me was this. 
The only thing that counts, he says this in Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that counts, he had my attention with that. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. My friends, may our faith be expressed through love for one another, for God, and for our so loved world. But we glorify God not just through our service, but also in our suffering. We're going to rattle through this pretty quickly. So let's go to the text if we can. We'll finish off this passage. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ideal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, you should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. You know, the churches that Peter was writing to would have been made up of both Jewish Christians, those who'd grown up in Jewish faith, and those who were Gentiles, non-Jewish Christians. And for Jewish Christians, suffering, well, that's just part of the deal. Um, Jews knew and they know about suffering. In the first century, you know, Jews had lived, if they were in Palestine, under occupation for centuries. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and now the Romans. They'd never had control of their own destiny. They'd always suffered from the fear and the xenophobia of others. But for Gentile Christians, the whole suffering deal, I didn't sign up for this. Really? I'm a Roman citizen. I didn't sign up for this. And Peter is writing to them, to all of them, and he's saying, don't be surprised when you suffer because of your faith. And he uses this imagery of a fiery ordeal. I know Mike talked about Nero last week, and you would have heard about him over the last few weeks. Nero, this emperor, this crazy madman, who uh, in 64 AD, there was the great fire of Rome, which destroyed, historians tell us, about 71% of the city. 71% was burnt down. It burnt for days and days and days. And uh, historians um, suggest that uh, Nero himself, though he didn't light the match, so to speak, he ordered the match to be lit for various possible reasons, you know, to basically as a perverse urban renewal project. (laughs) He wanted to clear it out. (laughs) He wanted to make space for a new palace. He wanted to remake Rome in his own image. We don't really know. We don't really know if Nero was the one. I mean, Rome was a tightly packed city. It was a fire waiting to happen. Whatever the case... What we do know is this, from historians, Nero blamed the Christians. And that's when the first great persecution broke out. And so 
Peter is saying, you know, in the context of this, and, and even though he's writing to churches that are hundreds of miles from Rome, they would have heard the story. And he's saying, don't be surprised about your fiery ordeal. And he offers some wisdom for those who suffer, not just them, but those of us who suffer today, particularly those who suffer because of their faith. Number one, he says this, suffering should not surprise us. Friends, we follow the suffering servants. We follow the saviour who bears the scars of his suffering. We follow the one who is acquainted with grief and who bids us come follow him to take up our cross. So we should not be surprised when suffering, if and when suffering comes our way. Number two, he suggests that suffering is a test. As fire refines gold, suffering gold, suffering purifies our faith. It tests the genuineness of our faith. And so he has this quite controversial, radical sort of statement of belief that that God allows suffering now for those in the household of God so that we don't experience judgment later. It's a hard hard, hard truth. That in the test, the genuineness of our faith will be proven or otherwise. And he goes on to say even something harder still. And if you think that uh, to avoid suffering, you can renounce your faith through apostasy, basically renounce your faith, turn away from your faith, then he reminds them and he reminds us today, if we do that, it's like jumping from the frying pan literally into the fire. He said, don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth giving in or giving up. So suffering should not surprise us. Suffering is a test. Three, suffering for Jesus' sake is a cause for rejoicing. Really? That sounds masochistic. Really? He's saying that because if you suffer for his name, you're considered worthy of his name. And as we suffer, as it did with Jesus, the Spirit of God rests on us in our suffering. That even in our suffering, especially in our suffering, we are never away from the presence of God. That God is present with us in the midst of our pain, of our anguish, of our trial, of our suffering. In the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who as one theologian puts him, is a visitor from the future telling us that one day God will make all things new. And in this day, he will strengthen us for our trial. You know, there are many images for the Holy Spirit uh, and words for the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures in both the Old and New Testament. The Holy Spirit doesn't just turn up at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was there hovering over creation before it was even formed. And so the Holy Spirit uh, is imaged in a number of different ways. But one of my favourite images comes from the New Testament, where the New Testament writers and Jesus himself refers to the Holy Spirit as the advocate. And it has this uh, legal sort of connotations that the one who stands in the courtroom arguing on our behalf, testifying on our behalf. And and that certainly is in that image. But there's another way of understanding and unpacking this image of advocate. And it comes from uh, the Greco-Roman military uh, 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 sort of world. 
and I'm going to get Dave to come up. He volunteered. I volunteered him so well in the first service. He's going to do it again in the second service. So in Greco-Roman times, particularly in Greek times, so this is a few centuries before Peter wrote this, uh, this text, this word advocate emerged, and it emerged in the context of, of some of the Greek wars. And basically an advocate was someone who went into battle with you. And when the battle was fierce and close, when it was hand-to-hand combat, the advocate would be the person, your soldier friend, who would literally be back-to-back with you like this. You'd be lashed to them. You'd be tied together by a belt. And when there was fighting coming at you, some people coming at you with swords or, or, or daggers or whatever else it would be, you would move around together and you would protect one another. Yeah, yeah, fight, fight, fight. Come on. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> And so what, what, what the New Testament writers are saying is that when you're in the midst of the battle, you're never, ever, ever alone. Amen. The advocate is with you. You have a battle partner, one who fights with you, one, one who fights for you, for you. Would you thank Dave? He's an awesome battle partner. So suffering is a cause for rejoicing because in the midst of our suffering, God is present. He's with us. He never abandons us. Number four, suffering is not a cause for shame but for glorifying God. When we suffer for Jesus, we share fellowship with him and glorify him. It's an honour to suffer for Jesus' sake. When Jesus said to the disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, the word that's translated as witness is the word martus in Greek. It literally means martyr. You will be the ones who lay down your life for me. You will be my martus. And so we can transcend current pain and we consider the transcendent glory that is to come. And then finally, suffering should lead to surrender. Just as Jesus entrusted his spirit to the Father, so too can we, should we, will we when we suffer. Even in suffering, I cannot escape God's presence. And when we surrender our lives to God in the midst of suffering, as Peter says, we, suffer, we surrender our lives to our faithful creator, a God who surrounds us with his goodness and his faithfulness, as we sang before. And so, my friends, our purpose... The reason why you and I got up this morning, the reason why God has given breath in your lungs, our reason for living is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And so we we glorify God through our service. We glorify God in our suffering. And my friends, it's not an exhaustive list, but both are acts of worship. Both are opportunities for us to present our bodies to him as living, holy sacrifices. You know, we're not living, as some would say, I think, in a post-Christian world where, where our world has forgotten Christianity. In some ways, that's the case. But for many, many, many Australians, they don't know Christianity to forget it. We live in many ways in a world very similar to the first century world. We live in many ways a pagan pre-Christian world. Yeah. Where people don't know Jesus enough to reject him. 
It happens all the time. I have conversations with people at Wesley Mission. They're working for a Christian organisation and they don't know. We live in a pre-Christian world where many Australians are not familiar enough with Christianity to reject it. But here's what they will reject. Even in the first century world, it wasn't so much they rejected Jesus, but they rejected the way that Christians lived. They will reject today, as then, the practices and ethics that are out of step with the spirit of the age. When we live as Jesus' followers, when we live according to God's law and commands, we will live out of step with the spirit of the age, and that will show up in things like bioethics and sexual ethics. And so our choice, without labouring the point, is this. It's a, really, it's a really key question. Will we surrender to the spirit of the age, or will we surrender to the Lord of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega? I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message, finishing preparing it, and then on Friday as I was praying over our beautiful granddaughter, asked me to show you a photo later on. (laughs) And as I was praying for her, I was praying for her knowing that the world that she will inherit will be very different to the world that I've travelled through. AI and all the changes that are rapidly accelerating through our world. The, you know, so much change, accelerating change. And here's some of the, what I prayed for her. You know, God laid this on my heart some months ago. I prayed that God would give her something of the spirit of Ruth. That she'd be courageous, loyal, faithful, God-honouring, resilient, steadfast in the midst of change and suffering and pain that she would keep her eyes on Jesus the one who I pray will be the author and then the perfecter of her faith and that's my prayer for you New Life Cooley keep your eyes on Jesus the author and the perfecter of your faith and the story that's unfolding here who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame, embraced suffering at its worst form, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father and whose joy is you and me. Will you stand? Father, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness, that you are good. You're always good, that your love endures forever. God, I pray your blessing over this community. Father, thank you for them. Thank you for their faithfulness. Thank you for their sacrificial and generous hospitality. Thank you for their willingness to step out in faith. God, I pray for Scotty and for Georgie and for the whole New Life Cooley family, God, that you would strengthen them to be steadfast, faithful, proclaimers and embodiers of your gospel in a world that desperately needs to hear, see and experience good news. Spirit of God, fall afresh on us that we might not be reservoirs but rivers that flow with the blessings that you abundantly pour into our lives. May we love you through our service. May we love you in our suffering. May we glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name. And together we say...
thanks again for listening to the New Life podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or our Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed. Thank you.